HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're getting semantic to understand the deeper meaning behind some of the foods we love. First, we'll look at the big debate happening around the word milk. Who the hell are you to tell me what does the name of my product and my landscape and everything we've cared about when, you know, you don't have anything invested in except to put out a little money to buy it. (laughs) It's our entire life. Then we get the lowdown on the language of cider. So the first thing that's really confusing about dryness is that it has nothing to do with how something actually feels in your mouth. And finally, we get our fill of tiki talk. You don't walk into a tiki bar and be like, oh yeah, this is what Polynesia is probably like. Like it's, it's supposed to be like fantasy and stuff. That's the hard part. It's so easy to do tiki bad, and that's where it gets a bad name. Tune into this week's episode of Meat and 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host here on on Heritage Radio Network on A Taste of the Past. And, you know, for to learn about the food of a country, one really has to look at the culture and the history of the people in that place. In the past, the food of Italy, for instance, has often been reduced to a few popular dishes, kind of all lumped together and say, oh yeah, that's Italian. And even then, it was most likely represented, misrepresented or misunderstood. You know, just think spaghetti or spaghetti and meatballs? Mm-mm. But we've come a long way in understanding the variations and the nuances of regional cuisine. And my guest today has definitely added her voice to that pursuit. She's Katie Parla, a well-known food and beverage journalist, a travel and culinary guide with an award-winning food and travel site, and I will add, a historian. More than just a culinary historian, she is a historian. Evidenced by her scholarly research in the origins and backgrounds of the places and culture and food that she writes about. Her articles have appeared in a lot of publications. Some that you most likely would be familiar with are the New York Times, Food and Wine, Sever, The Guardian, Condé Nast Traveler, Eater. I'm running out of breath. Katie is the author of the 2016 award-winning cookbook, Tasting Rome, 
and it's so much more than a cookbook. Her newest book that's just been released by Clarkson Potter is entitled Food of the Italian South, Recipes for Classic, Disappearing, and Lost Dishes. Welcome, Katie. Again, this is so much more than a cookbook. It's true, Linda. It really, I mean, it really is. But you know, you I mentioned I, I read in there that went and I've known because I've known you for a while. And so many years now. I don't know. It's been quite a few, and you're a very good guest and a very frequent guest when I can nab you when you're in town or when I'm in Rome. But what drove you to write about the South of Italy? I love the South. Um, I often joke, and this will only be funny to people who know Roman geography. I never go north of Ponte Milvio. <laughs> Um, see, you get it. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I love, I live in Rome. I've been there for 16 years. And when I have a day free, I hop on an hour long train to Naples, the gateway to the South. When I have a week or a month free, I hop in a car and visit Molise, Calabria, Campania, Basilicata, and Puglia. Um, I just really love the culture and the food in the South and a lot of the sort of ingredients that we associate with Italian cuisine. We know that there is no real Italian cuisine, but the sort of generic idea of Italian cuisine, like mozzarella, mozzarella di bufala specifically, um, the use of tomatoes and eggplants and and those types of things are more deeply rooted in the cuisines of the South. Um, So yeah, I really like the food. I really like the atmosphere. Um, And you've got these like incredible regions. Molise, which is just two hours drive from Rome, has far more livestock than people. And you you can have real adventures when you go to that region um, or any of the ones that I listed earlier um, in a way that you can't if you're going to Florence or Venice or even my home, Rome. It's all people. Packed with people. Those are all people. Almost right? no sheep. Yeah. And it's interesting because, uh, to me um, because the dishes that have, I don't know, a little bit more soul, a little bit more character, all seem to come from the South. I mean, certainly, yes, northern beans and polenta, although you find a lot of polenta South, too. But, um, you know, and of course now in, in the big cities, you know, Torino and, and Milano, and there, it's they're big cities and you get a little bit of everything and you could you you don't know you, you forget what city you're in usually when you're eating in those cities but yet you go to the south and you really remember where you are right yeah i mean there still really feels like a when you go to naples or bari um you don't have the same i don't know almost like diluted food culture that you find in rome or venice um people are still cooking the cucina barese and the cucina napolitana in a way that's much closer to the the orange origins of those things and and of course the origins of those things we talk often and i talk often on this show and i promise i wouldn't do too many more italian shows but no, <laughs> i would branch out up. but hey i can't help it you know um that it was wild you know widely based on the cucina povera if even that is sort of a misnomer too in the southern dishes I and mean, so yes and no a lot of the things that we you know eat today in the south of italy are really simple dishes but that's because the cuisines the regional cuisines of those places um sort of as we know them took shape in the late 19th and early 20th centuries when the south was impoverished before that you know naples and and 
uh, and the environs were some of the wealthiest and most populated places in the world, like pre-Italian unification. Right. Um, there were a lot of wealthy people in the South, and you still do see evidence of, of that nobility in the deserts, which tend to be like elaborate and um, with lots of sugar and colorful things um, that really do demonstrate how you know, opulent the culture was before the economic devastation that was caused by the unification immigration yeah. Well, talk a little bit about what what caused that the South to be so impoverished and basically lose all a majority of the inhabitants who all fled to parts like Canada and North America and I mean America. Yeah. Uh, so Australia. In, until 1861, um, the South of Italy was under Spanish dominion. The Bourbons ruled. Um, to get a sense of how like in immensely wealthy they were, visit the Regia di Caserta, which rivals Versailles. Um, and that, you know, the whole lower peninsula had a ruling class that was very wealthy, um, that was secular, and then also the the uh, the clergy that was a, a really important landholding uh, feature. And when Italy was unified, the Bourbons and, you know, the church and all the people that were running the real estate and businesses of the South were a threat to the unification of Italy. So uh, the Turin-based king, who eventually made his capital in Florence and then Rome, his name is Victor Emmanuel II, um, implemented policies along with his successors that systematically destroyed the economy of the South, breaking up noble lands and church lands and so people who lived off of the land often lost their means of supporting themselves, and many starved. Um, those who could afford it or organize themselves enough went to ports and departed at the end of the 19th century, mainly for uh, the ports of the United States. And the economic devastation never, the South never really did rebound from that. Um, and so when Italy suffered economic crises like in the 60s or you know in 2009 the south really did absorb most of that sort of devastation leading to successive uh migrations to canada um south america all over south america australia um and uh, of course the brain drain that we talk about when we speak of modern italy um the south has a lot of university educated people who have fled to milan london um places where there are jobs for academics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because the, uh, it, you mentioned, in fact, in your book, you you know, every time you go to, to the South, to a particular area, you go, where is everybody? You know, It's still, I mean, now they are getting there. They didn't have their fair share of tourism for a long time. It, they really weren't tourist central uh, down there. But now, certainly Puglia, um, uh, Calabria, to some extent, um, is becoming much more a tourist destination. Yeah, I mean, I think if you want to choose one region that has really transformed itself deliberately into a tourism destination, that has to be Puglia. And European Union funds um, have been properly used to develop touristic centers, especially around Salento and Lecce, um, the Valle d'Itria, which is best known for Alvaro Bello, and it's truly... Um, Bari has seen a real renaissance. Um, 
and Matera, which is just across the yeah. border, is Basil- often... And Basilicata is starting to... I mean, to a very small extent, only the, I would say only the two centers, well, let's say three, the Vulture, um, which is the wine producing area, um, famous for Alianico, has some tourism, Bernalda has tourism, thanks to Francis Ford Coppola's Palazzo Margarita, which is like very fancy, um, not particularly uh, accessible um, destination, like a boutique hotel, and then uh, Matera which also has benefited from European Union funds, private investment, local investment, um, and uh, really is like a cool place to visit if one that feels inauthentic for the near absence of people living in Matera. Um, The Sassi di Matera, which is that part. If if you know Matera or if you just like simply Google Matera, the first thing that will come up in an image search is this like nativity-like landscape. Um, called the Sassi, where people lived in caves until the 1950s and 60s when they were forcibly uh, evacuated for the hygienic conditions. And now that's a place that people, myself included, go and like gawk at all the weird cave dwellings. Yeah, interesting. Uh, You really held to, in writing this book um, and researching the cuisine, you held to the designation of the south of Italy and not southern Italy. You want to talk about that? Explain that. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to create um, I wanted to create a book that had a clear geographic delineation. Southern Italy is, you know, most everything south of Rome. So let's say like from Gaeta all the way down through the toe and the heel. Sardinia is considered part of southern Italy. Sicily, surely. Um, but I wanted something that was more focused on the Lower Peninsula only, um, and the book covers Molise, Calabria, Campania, Puglia, and Basilicata. Um, and I certainly could have ex- you know, extended, but that would have brought in Sicily, which would have taken up space better, in my opinion, dedicated to Molise and Basilicata, which have you know, almost no literature about them. Whereas there already are many wonderful books about Sicily. Yeah. And the, the South Italy versus Southern Italy distinction um, has its roots in like a very boring um, Italian bureaucratic definition. We won't go there. Yeah. <laughs> and but and also places like um, Sicily and Sardinia. I mean, they that would that's a whole. You're talking about a whole other cuisine and a whole it, it, to a large extent, um, or at least some of the, many of the specific dishes. So I think focusing on this was a wonderful thing. I mean, it's you know you you uh, you know you keep it very very specified, very unique. Uh, you talk about the, the process when you, um, I said earlier in the introduction that, you know, you, your research is always solid and um, solid by going and talking to people, finding out about what's going on in the region as well as scholarly. I mean, you look up your, you know, your dates and the history and what's going on in the region. What, what was your process here and how did you, who did you decide to talk to? Where did you go? How did you find out about so many of these dishes? Well, I'm super fortunate in having more than 15 years of experience traveling to the South. And even before I was writing cookbooks, when I would travel, you know, like my friends or, you know, whoever I was traveling with at the time would go to the beach and I would go to the Trattoria and interrogate people. Or my friends would go to the beach and I would go to the vineyard and interrogate people, taking notes always. And 
Um, then when I was sort of more strategically researching for the book, um, I would go to markets and strike up conversations with vendors, ask them questions about their food memories, because a lot of the dishes that, you know, people think about when they think of their nostalgia for food, they're not talking about the things that are on the table today. They're talking about the things their grandparents made decades ago and therefore have either vanished and only exist in memories um, or only made, you know, when the whole family gets together once a year or if there are a lot of family members living abroad once every five years or 10 years. So it was, yeah, a lot of, you know, speaking to people about what they what they remembered about their childhood tables. Um, also looking at works of art um, for, from festivals, um, which were important during the time in which virtually everyone in the South was a, was either a noble or a rural peasant. Um, and when, you know, peasants were encouraged to party uh, around, you know, important holidays. Um, and then, you know, seeing if I could trace the, the origins of a recipe that appeared in, in a work of art. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of these recipes um, certainly aren't we're not we're talking about history we're not talking about uh you know pre-17th century really because tomatoes uh, are evident in many of the and eggplant tomatoes um, things that would be new world additions to um, the cuisine so these are i mean (laughs) people to think about their grandparents certainly they weren't that old (laughs) um how how much uh, do you feel the cuisine is based on a lot of these new world or perhaps even other uh, influences from other places? Great question. I mean, there are some like legumes and pulses, uh, prickly pears, certainly uh, tomatoes, certainly different types of squashes for sure that arrived um, after uh, the, the 15th century. But the origins of a lot of these dishes if you, t- if you sort of look at the ingredients list of a soup and there are 10 different legumes, some of which were, you know, um, coming from uh, Asia, others that are coming from the New World, um, you do see sometimes, like, some families will add tomato and some don't. It's kind of like caponata in Sicily. There's some people who make it the old school way, no tomatoes, and some will use tomatoes. Um, so you can really, like, imagine extracting that New World uh, ingredient. Um, and... You know, take a look through the book, and actually, a lot of the stuff is indigenous. Um, if you want to draw a sort of line at indigenous being like Greco Roman times, so a stew with bay leaves and pork and grapes would have been one right my, at home. <laughs> one of my favorite recipes in the book, I have to say. <laughs> it's so good. And I keep saying like, oh my God, this is so delicious. But, you know, not because I, you know, wrote this recipe, but simply because I went to a place, ate this reverse engineered it and like someone else made this really delicious. I just now, put that, it on paper. And it's spezzatina aluva. See. Si. So it's little little cuts of, of pork with grapes. Now this is not really a disappearing recipe though. I mean that's that's around a bit, isn't it? I mean, do you consider that something that's sort of falling off the the grid? I wouldn't necessarily consider this one disappearing. It Maybe maybe doesn't have the critical mass that it used to because in Molise, where this comes from, um, small family-owned plots where people harvest grapes and make their own wine, 
um, have slowly been abandoned as it's mm. really hard to make wine. Yeah. Um, and lots of Molizani have gone elsewhere. Um, and when you visit Molise, there, you do encounter these like enormous vineyards making pretty low quality wine. Um, and they're not like taking a lunch break and making pork stew with grapes. Like that's not, that's not how these large vineyards operate anymore. So let's put this in the category of, you know, disappearing, but not totally lost. Okay. Now you mentioned, <clears throat> just to jump into like never, never land. <laughs> you mentioned people who had memories of dishes that nobody finds anymore. Nobody makes anymore. Well then they, I mean, but they remember the dish. So did you try to recreate them? Is there anything that you considered or, or the person you interviewed considered totally lost that you have tried to recreate and reintroduce? Yeah, crapiata is uh, is a dish that um, so it's it's from Matera, which I referenced before. This um, really like stone hewn city of cave dwellings that was forcibly evacuated of its residents in the mid twentieth century. And when people did live there, they would cook in their communal courtyards. People lived in caves around courtyards, and they would do a lot of cooking in these huge vessels. Um, and crapiato is specifically a dish that was consumed around um, the end of uh, harvest time. Um, and people would get together and they would party and they would drink too much and they would eat this soup that was made of lots and lots of different um, beans, fava beans and, and, and other things as well. Um, and then when people were moved to housing projects above the city, they didn't eat this dish anymore. Um, although... Uh, they might have talked about it and reminisced about it. It lost its original location. And so it ceased to be produced in Matera. Hmm. Um, but I'd read about it and, um, and I'd seen uh, etchings of people simmering in these huge cauldrons. And so I would go to the market um, in Matera, which is in the sort of new part of Matera, and ask people about it and go to the dried bean vendor and inquire and sort of crowdsourced memories. Um, and you know, the, the dish that's in the book, the crapiata recipe that's in the book is a sort of, um, potpourri of, of people's memories. Hmm. That's interesting. I'm sure. And, and I'm sure it's one of those dishes too, that every family or family group made it differently. Sure. Right? Depending and, on what they had on hand. Too. Yeah, I mean, the thing that wasn't... The thing that was universal is, like, you made it in a gigantic cauldron. You do not need a gigantic cauldron or any special equipment for the recipes in this book. That's the that's the good news. Because the idea is, like, these things are vanishing or they've disappeared, so let's adapt them so that people can consume them and preserve the modern them. Modern kitchen, yeah. But let's, but let's do talk about cauldrons, the cooking vessels, for a moment. Um... Those often, in for many of the old recipes, were as important as the recipe itself, right? I mean, for sure, they um, were heirlooms. Um, people would pass them down um, through the matrilineal line, and it was an important feature of a woman's value all over the South to provide full, like a fully stocked kitchen and a fully stocked um, collection of bed linens. Part of her dowry. or Of course. Or we would say hope chest. Right? Sure, exactly. Better branding. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the copper pot dowry was essential. And because so many of these villages have sort of similar approaches to preparing 
legumes and meats and things. There would be the sort of stock of copper, copper items that would pass from one family to the next. Mm-hmm. And then there would be terracotta. They did use terracotta. Absolutely. Pots, right? Absolutely. And it was funny because I just I was seeing a friend's posting of a wonderful large terracotta pot in Morocco that was being simmered over embers. I'm thinking, hmm, that doesn't sound too unfamiliar as far as a lot of southern Italy, no. long cooking stews and Not dishes, right? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about more of these disappearing and lost dishes and some recipes as well. So stay tuned. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise and affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Sari Kamen. And I'm Leah Kurtz. And together we host Food Without Borders here on HRN. Immigrants make our food system vibrant, diverse, and delicious. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about how food connects them to their past as we explore what it's like to be an immigrant in the U.S. today. You can find Food Without Borders wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Katie Parla. And Katie has a brand new book out called Food of the Italian South. The I'm going to get the last part right. The recipes for classic disappearing, classic disappearing, and lost dishes. Now, of course, it sounds like an oxymoron to say a recipe for a lost dish, but but in fact, you have tried to recreate some of these dishes that are probably disappearing from from people's hopefully not their memories. I mean, that's the only way you can get them, but from their lex from their their whole repertoire of of cooking on a daily basis uh the another dish that came to mind when i was thinking of uh, of kind of you know just disappearing dishes people are so maybe adhered to rest adhering to recipes all the time well we have to make you know the recipe we have to make a puttanesca we have to make oh god knows we t- you and i talked about in rome all the dishes that were coming back from grandmother's the you know the cacciapepe the you know the carbonara but you have this cute and wonderful it seems to me tasting dish I don't know I didn't make it didn't taste it but I can't imagine how it could be bad garbage can pasta it's so good what is garbage can pasta garbage can pasta uh, in Neapolitan dialect Sikida Munetsa is a dish that is very typically made in and around Naples at Christmas time when Neapolitans cook so many dishes for Christmas Eve so many dishes for Christmas sometimes they forget to eat so they have to like whip something together really quick and spaghetti made in Sikida Monezza style is like the perfect thing because it uses scraps left over from uh, savory and sweet cooking so 
Um, it's kind of like puttanesca, like souped up puttanesca in a way, really fastish. It's, um, it's a tomato-based sauce with pine nuts, hazelnuts, walnuts, uh, capers, olives, and raisins. Some people also use candied fruit and or anchovies. It doesn't really have a strict recipe because everyone makes it with whatever's laying around after food prep. Um, although the one that appears in the book is from Ecorti in Santa Anastasia, this wonderful trattoria that's been open since 1924. And it's Ange Ceriello's uh, version. Well, what could be bad? It's like, it's so <laughs> delicious. And, you know, I want people to look at this and be like, that's a really terrible name. Let me see how it tastes. And then they'll say, it's so delicious. This is going to be, you know, in my daily rotation or my weekly rotation. It's such a delicious thing. When I saw it listed, I, I immediately turned to it to read more about it, thinking, well, it sounds like something I'd make when I'd go to the refrigerator. We don't have anything else to eat. We just get home from a late night, I don't know, or come back from the country, and totally. i got to throw something together. No, this is, no, it's not at all what I would <laughs> This was totally different. I mean, the use of, you know, a little sweetness in there, and then the capers with the with the nuts and the and and some you know tomatoes maybe it was i mean it's it's a wonder it has a wonderful base it has a wonderful so great. wonderful taste um, we have in the studio with us Claire Alsop and if um, those of you who subscribe and follow you'll remember that Claire uh, was with me for a wonderful program on on the anchovy sauce on colatura di chatara and um, Katie, you've got a whole mention of the colatura because oh, yeah. it's it's an anchovy sauce that is is and I like what you said. It was like an elegant or, or somebody else you would an interview said garum. an elegant garum. Yeah, you don't use the fish guts as we talked about. It's just pure anchovies and just that have just sort of yeah, emulsified. What are you not? Some people call it an elixir. Yeah. Yeah, and elixir. used drop by drop because, well, some people use a little more than that because they get used to it, but it is pretty pungent. And if you're not used to it, it's, it has quite a, a lot of flavor. But anyway, Claire, hi, Claire. You, <laughs> hey, Claire. You did, a wonderful, you did a wonderful show on that. And so um, I thought it was interesting for you because you're familiar with the south of Italy, at least the um, Naples and, and Amalfi Coast area, and wondered if there was anything you wanted to ask um, Katie, uh, about the book that you thought might be interesting for people who might be thinking about the South and what what your take is. Yeah. Hey, Katie. Hi. Um, so I was curious because I recognize some of these recipes from my time spent in Campania, but I know they're accredited to other regions across the South of Italy. And I'm curious how you chose the recipes and regions um, associated with them whether it was based on the importance within the region or just your favorite interpretation of a dish and what the differences are between some of the region's um, recipes when they overlap a little bit. So are there any recipes in particular that you're thinking of? The moment they are escaping me because I was not <laughs> prepared, but there was one that I think had... Um, a bread salad to take on like a panzanella that I would. Okay, the, it's called caponata. Actually, I saw that too. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's a panzanella. Well, a little right. different. Yeah. Right. So okay. So caponata, C A P U N A T A, not to be confused right. with Sicilian caponata, is like a frizella, um, which can be made with barley or or various wheat flours, and it's like a. It looks like a bagel, but it's not a bagel. It's like a twice baked 
cookie bread. A rusk, <laughs> yeah, you call rusk, it. Yeah, yes. Rusk, hardtack, all that, <laughs> that stuff. That hard bread that you don't really know what to do with. And it's like broken up into pieces and tossed with escarole, tomatoes, like whatever you got around. Um, that is su- something that's so typical of like Puglia, but then you also find it in parts of Basilicata. Like it's one of those things that does... I wouldn't say it travels. It's just there are a lot of places that use rusk. And one way that you still consume rusk today is by softening it with olive oil, a little bit of water, vegetables. So the components change depending on where you are because the, and you know, this also goes for like the fillings of the swordfish roll or a lot of the bread fillings that are in the dish. They, the breadcrumbs are always in the mix, but then the other seasonings change depending on geography. Um, you know, it's a similar way, like, you've got durum wheat pasta in Puglia, and you've got durum wheat pasta in Basilicata, but the shapes that they take change depending on where you are often um, because the produce or the items that are available as condiments change, and pasta shapes and sauces are meant to complement one they another. Have to, they, you have to have the so right I think it's a legal, right legal requirement, <laughs> yeah. correct? Right, right. Uh, try to explain that to people. You know, when you, when, but you don't say it when someone serves you something totally inappropriate. You just <laughs> <laughs> kind of hold off till the end, another time. Um, but that's interesting, yeah, that the, that dish traveled. Actually, I noticed the swordfish rolls with the with the breadcrumbs yeah. inside, That's and that's a very Sicilian uh, It feels so well, Sicilian, right? but it's from Scilla, which huh. is in Calabria. And just to follow up on on um, the second part of Claire's yeah. question, which like which one is the real recipe, which is authentic? I tried not to really get bogged down with that, but instead root each head note, um, which is the text that precedes the recipe, um, gives a a little background into the into the dish. Um, and of course, you know, travel all over the south, and you will find candele with induya made one way in one village and then every village between there and the next one has a different one. Then you find almost an identical version. Like there's no, these things aren't living in sort of a vacuum. So sometimes you find like pretty close to identical recipes at a great distance. Um, and then other times you find things like manel, which is a, like a cornbread fritter, um, formed with, by pressing, squeezing the, the, the sort of, cooked polenta in your fist and frying it like that's typical of the sanio uh, specifically um one part of the sanio and then you don't find it really in other places but you do find cubes of polenta fried in bari hmm. so yeah i was gonna similar, ask you recipe, how, different form i mean in general how much how much cornmeal was used i'm thinking in the past because corn was not grown as much down south there was so much trade going on, though, and there yeah. are certainly places where corn is cultivated in, now, in South now Italy. Now, now it's a whole different thing, yeah. right? And you know, when corn started to be sort of mass cultivated, um, there would have been a lot of there would have been many cornfields in the South, and now the um, demand from the 20th century onward has been for wheat flour, um, wheat berries, and wheat flour. Um, so, particularly because pasta production has increased across Italy and globally. Um, so there are certainly cornbread and polenta recipes in Puglia, definitely in Molise, things that really would be considered to Pugliesi or Molisani as like completely authentic. But because we associate polenta with the north, mm-hmm. um, we forget that, that it really is part of some southern cuisines. I had just seen recently a recipe for a corn, corn meal, corn flour, pasta. And 
I don't remember where I saw it, but anyway, I didn't know if you ran across anything. Not that like I can that recall, sort. but I would totally eat I was, that. Yeah, I was wondering about that and how, how much it was used. Which brings, I want to talk about pasta and pasta shapes because everybody, everybody thinks pasta when they think of, sure. of certainly the south of Italy, but in Italy in general. And who doesn't love pasta, right? <laughs> um, but first I wanted to mention something, and I was so pleased to see you had it in your book. Uh, it's come up recently with a couple of different chefs, or one in particular, and I forget who, and it was well, probably written about in, in some food article, food magazine. And that is the burnt flour that's grano used. Grano arso. Grano arso, used to make pasta. Yes, Tell me about that, and because my question, the bigger question, is how much lore is this, like traditions and stories that you're never quite sure where, what the actual history is of a lot of this. But you have a, a quite a wonderful background on the on the arso. So here. grano arso, which means burned grains, um, is well. Let's go to what the probable origins are. At the turn of the 20th century, or just following unification, as there was an increase in mechanization in fields in and around Puglia and Basilicata. And owners of farms. Of course. Owners of farms are have their lands dispersed. Um, people were really, really hungry. So after the grain cultivation in June or July, the fields would be burned, which is the custom, and peasants would go collect the charred wheat berries and then mill them and make pasta. It's highly unlikely that they were not also mixing that with... Uh, unburned milled grain because you, it's very difficult to develop any gluten in charred wheat berries hmm. in pasta made from the flour of charred wheat berries. So most likely people weren't just eating like wheat berries that had been milled into flour and mixed with water to make orecchiette or cavatelli. They were just using a portion of the burned grain, um, which is reflected in the recipe. Hmm. Um, now, after a time, lots of people left these rural zones and grano arso ceased to be part of the cuisine it seems for decades until the 80s or 90s when chefs in Puglia in particular were looking back at old recipes and old stories and they revived grano arso now there are many companies that sell grano arso already milled so sort of burnt flour um, many chefs in Puglia other parts of Italy to a lesser extent and many Italian uh uh, leaning chefs in America make orecchiette or other orecchiette. sort of small stubby shapes al right. grano arso. Um, and what's really fun about this recipe is it you know comes from around Andria where people were desperately impoverished and they made their grano arso pasta. And then in the 90s, the revival of this product um, is really like a huge resurgence. It becomes like this very posh thing to have like grano arso um, or chiette. So they put like burrata on it. Burrata is a very luscious um, mozzarella-like, uh, sort of like a mozzarella sheath filled with mozzarella curds and sort of a, a cream. And that becomes one of the toppings along with the almond pesto in what we would call neo-trattorias, places that are doing something which is modern, but often looking to the with past little, for their inspiration. A little, yeah, a little hint to the... Or- Wink to the uh, see to the past. That's great. Well, I'm wondering, could you just toast the flour? Yeah, and you know, you could toast. Yeah, so you I don't have to. I started thinking about that. Harvest grain. Yeah, to- toast. <laughs> and then burn I don't have to go out to the burnt field and right, but just toast the flour. I mean, it does give a real nutty. 
flavor to a lot of things. I mean, toasted yes. using toasted flour for roux and, um, and you know gravies and, and other things has has been done forever. Oh, I mean, yes. so it seems that it would it would render a, a real nutty kind of flavor. To exactly. Things. Yeah, interesting. Um, and the use of, well the use of bread. There's bread so much bread mm. throughout, um, and mostly the Durham wheat bread. Durham wheat was grown throughout oh, yeah. most of the area. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was uh, hard and soft wheat grown all over South Italy to this day, although now because of the demand for uh, flour for, for pasta, um, extruded pasta, um, durum wheat dominates. But uh, people 100 years ago, 150 years ago, were eating their carbs in bread form mm-hmm. to a greater extent that they were eating in pasta form. And you mentioned earlier breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs being used yes. to even make pasta. I mean, Absolutely, yeah. yeah, and bread would be baked often in these communal ovens. People would bake, you know, not daily, but sometimes just weekly. So they would have to have a lot of recipes to make the use of stale, to make use of stale bread that included, um, sort of cubing the stale bread and baking it into casseroles, using it as filling or stuffing for, um, meat rolls or, uh, fish rolls. Um, yeah, there are lots and lots of stale bread uses in here. So, I wouldn't recommend using any stale bread that you have. Like if you've got Wonder Bread or whatever, <laughs> that might be like okay in the. Uh, I, I, I give a little. I give a, I give a little more respect to my listeners. I think. I think no, I mean, they get it. Wonder Bread <laughs> tastes good, like with PB and J. Like maybe you've got Wonder Bread laying around yeah, and you don't yeah. want to chuck it. Yeah. No. I <laughs> Who get knows? It. Yeah. Um, and, and pasta shapes. Is there any any pasta shapes that you? I, I know they abound there every day. There's another pasta shape that comes up that I never knew about, and I don't know whether it's a new one or if it's you know it's an old one or only one person in the you know in the community made it. Uh, but any type of pasta shape that that you attribute particularly to Southern culture to the Southern culture of, of Italy. It's a great question. I mean, I, th- I think uh, cavatelli and orecchiette and cavatelli and their various sort of lengths and right. you know in if you visit body cavatelli look a little bit different in in length than they do in the middle of your pino or the sanio the names change of course for the pasta shapes but the sort of short durum wheats uh, flour and water pastas um those are are really rooted in in the south mm-hmm how about the pastas that are rolled with a thin steel of a metal? Yeah, like the various the, type the of fusilli. Yeah, mm-hmm. and those can vary in length too. You can use a, a, a not the fusilli necessarily, but the the ones that are made the ones that are made with the metal rod that you the roll and and you get. Uh, they call them fusilli. They all. In, I mean, that's in the general, Italian. Fusilli? That's the Italian word for that long tube, mm. um, but it goes by a huge range of dialect forms. Interesting. I mean, it's Italy, right? So yeah. Yeah. everything defies explanation when it comes to <laughs> nomenclature. Um, and cheeses, of course, there are, as you were mentioning in um, Molise, all the, all the animals running around, all the livestock. Lots, that means a lot wild. of sheep, a lot of, a lot of goats, a lot of uh, cows. So there's a lot of cheese. So what, much. Um, Don't forget the buffaloes in Campania, too. Well, naturally. <laughs> well, you mentioned and you mentioned uh, the mozzarella da bufala, so you know the, that that goes without saying, and that's 
Talk about that. Oh, Montana de Buffalo. We'll talk, so I'll talk about the talk about the, the, the water buffalo. The, in, yeah. In, okay, so there are water buffalo that likely arrived in the Middle Ages, perhaps a little later. There's scholarly debate over their origins um, and their exact date of arrival. But water buffalo, until very recently, grazed in the marshy, mucky swamps of Campania. Um, and they were likely brought over for work. And someone discovered you could milk them and make cheese from their milk, and that cheese could be produced into something called mozzarella. It's pretty high fat uh, compared to cow's milk mozzarella. It's um, super flavorful, and now the mucky marshes have been dried up, but the buffaloes still roam um, in farms that vary in size. I always recommend that if you're going to the Amalfi Coast or to Naples that you rent a car or get a driver and go to Vanulo, which is very close to Pestum. So if you're mm-hmm. into archaeology, Pestum is amazing. And you can look at archaeological sites. But I would say go first to Vanulo because they only sell their buffalo mozzarella on the farm. They don't distribute it anywhere because they don't know what's going to happen to it when it leaves the farm and they want to absolutely guarantee its quality through temperature control. And part of the experience is going to like hang with the buffaloes. You see the pretty modern facilities where they self-regulate their massage and shower schedules where they can hang out on rubber mattresses which might sound absurd but actually if you think about it buffaloes are very very sensitive Um, their milk production and the quality of their milk is influenced by their mood Um, and so when they're stressed um, they can't make delicious milk they don't want to sounds sounds reasonable to me well katie we could keep talking about food and recipes and the south of Italy, uh, for a long time, but I encourage people to take a look at the book. And I enjoy talking to you whenever you come to town. You always have some interesting things to say. And again, Katie's new book is called Food of the Italian South, Recipes for Classic, Disappearing, and Lost Recipes. Okay, give me one last word. What was one of the surprise discoveries you made? or if any, and that was a disappearing recipe that you had to include? Um, I think one of the surprises was the sardines um, that were like layered in a saffron vinegar with breadcrumbs and aged in barrels in Gallipoli. Oh, that sounds good. It's really good. But they don't leave. They don't age them for a long time. I mean, they don't want them. No, they to just sort of marinate disintegrate. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They kind of, well depends on how long you leave them. But yeah, yeah. I've seen them in. Uh, I've seen them in various states of preservation. <laughs> you eat them with a spoon. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've been to Gallipoli a zillion times and never had seen them until uh, the past couple trips. So interesting, interesting. Okay, well, if you have now a hankering for some old-fashioned and historic recipes as well, um, definitely. Take a look. Not everything. There's not everything in the book. I mean, you got to go and. Unfortunately, there aren't 850,000 recipes in the book. Yeah, you got to go do some research yourself. But you certainly give a good idea of what these areas are like, how the production is still going on, and uh, where where production is still going on. And it's just a wonderful read. Thanks Grazie. so much. And thank you for listening to another taste of the past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. 
Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.